switching back over to our open home meeting schedule. So get ready for that. We'll be getting new group information out to you very soon. And uh, also we're working on the material for our studies. Very excited about starting that in the spring. Spring series starts uh, first Wednesday of March. And uh, I've been telling you about that. But what I haven't explained is our Victory Sundays are usually on a fifth Sunday. But the fifth Sunday of March, which is the first fifth Sunday of the year, is Easter. And at this church, there's a lot going on on Easter. There's the holiday, but also a lot of our folks are away for lads to leaders. And it's just a difficult time to do a special Sunday. So we're just uh, going to do, do it early and uh, have our Victory Sunday on March the 3rd. And so uh, it's coming up very soon, March the 3rd, uh, our first Victory Sunday of 2024. We're going to have Kyle Button with us. And Kyle uh, does a great job. We're really excited about having him here with us. If you don't know Kyle, he works for Apologetics Press. Uh, last year, he had a very uh, widely acclaimed debate with an atheist and did a great job. He spoke, I think, at the last area-wide in town, and uh, everybody that was there said he did a great job. So we're really excited about Kyle being with us. Uh, we'll have our usual schedule for those days, normal times for Bible class and worship, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. We'll have lunch and then 12.30 service in the afternoon. So be inviting your friends to that. That's going to be a great opportunity. A lot of things around the corner, so uh, stay up to date with the emails, and if you have any questions, ask Crystal. Don't, don't talk to me. Uh, so tonight's lesson is called Bad Count, and uh, when you see that, you might think the preacher's about to go on a rant about the attendance records, but we're going to be talking about 2 Samuel chapter 24, where David takes a census that displeased the Lord. This is a tough one. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of things to explore here. You could uh, get pretty technical about it if you wanted to, but I want to be sure that we draw out the lessons from God's Word that God wants us to learn, and that's going to be the main idea, but we'll touch on some of the, the questions and the perplexities as we come to them. But this lesson is another reminder that David's life, like ours, was full of highs and lows, peaks and valleys, triumphs, disappointments, successes and defeats, faithfulness and sin. The last lesson was full of stories about David's greatness. He was called by his men the lamp of Israel, and he was shining and showing God's light to all those in his kingdom. But then that is followed, even in his old age as a mature person, is followed by another failure here at the end of 2 Samuel. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this decision David made and analyze it and then go from there and try to learn what we can from it. So let's start with an analysis of the decision that David made, uh, starting with David. 
Uh, there are three parts to this analysis. We're going to start with David's motive. Okay, so 2 Samuel, we'll come to verse 1 in a moment, but let's start with verse 2. The king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. He's asking for a census. Big undertaking. Uh, we number the people every 10 years in this country. And uh, it takes a lot of manpower to do that, even in today's age with all the technology that we have. You can imagine what a job that was. And uh, we'll learn later this displeased the Lord, but it's not the, the action of numbering the people itself that was wrong, because you can look in Exodus chapter 30, and uh, it's legislated there. Numbers chapter 1, Numbers chapter 26... Uh, God commands a census to be taken of the people. So this was not illegal according to the law of Moses. In itself, it was not a sin. But you can change a good action into a bad action if you have the wrong motive. Right? You can, um, your worship, which outwardly is fine, can be displeasing to God. Think about the Pharisees and how they prayed and how they gave and how they fasted. And Jesus rebuked them for that, not because of the amount of money they were giving or even the words of their prayers, but because of their motives. They were doing it to be seen of men. You can look in the prophets like Micah and Amos, where God is saying things like, I despise your feasts. I detest your solemn assemblies. And it wasn't that they were bringing the wrong kind of offerings or offering them in the wrong place, but it was their hearts were corrupt. Their motives were wrong. Well, David's action here itself, the externals of this, is not the problem. The problem was the motives behind it. Uh, the motives aren't spelled out for us. So we have to look at what is implied and infer some things one, pride seems to be at the heart of this. God doesn't really need a census to be taken. And what he's doing here is he's counting the fighting men so he can glory in his massive army. It seems like David has a sense that Israel is strong, that its armies are well-staffed, uh, that he has a lot of personnel, and he wants to confirm that and boast about it. But also, there may be a monetary angle to this as well, because I mentioned Exodus 30 a moment ago. In Exodus 30, verse 12, it says that whenever Israel is numbered, that the people are to pay a half shekel apiece. And so there's money involved in the census taking, so... Maybe this was an extra tax he wanted to weigh onto the people. We don't know. It's not spelled out for us, but we do know that God was displeased with it, and uh, something here was amiss. Now, Joab, who's always by David's side, we've seen a lot about Joab. David's story is 
Joab's story in a lot of ways. He was the only man brave enough to stand up to the king. And he didn't like this idea at all. And before the Lord says anything about it, Joab says in verse 3, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? So the delight that David is taking in this gives us pause. You know, why, why does he want this? It seems to be a problem of pride. There's a parallel account that we'll be going back and forth to, and that's in 1 Chronicles 21. You might, if you've got a marker or you want to just keep your finger there, you might want to mark that. Um, in verse 6, it says that this whole idea was abhorrent to Joab. So he didn't just think it was a bad idea. He abhorred the idea of a census. And so there was something wrong with it. But David was unyielding. He wouldn't listen to Joab. He rarely did. And uh, this reveals two things about where David was spiritually at this time. Number one, he was out of touch with the Lord. We don't read about him praying or inquiring of the Lord or talking to a priest or making an offering. Nothing like that. He is completely on his own in this decision. And the second thing we can see about him is he was unaccountable to anybody around him. Wise men, even great wise men, listen to counsel. And he dismisses Joab without any discussion, without arguing his case or anything. He doesn't listen to him at all. So again, David is not in a great place, spiritually speaking. And this is when he tends to make mistakes. So we've investigated his motive. As we're analyzing this decision, let's look at God's purpose in this. And this is where it starts to get pretty tricky. Because we'll back up to verse 1 now. I skipped it a moment ago because I wanted to focus on David's motive. But verse 1 tells us, "...the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying..." Go, number Israel and Judah. So from verse 1, it appears that God had a purpose in this, and His purpose was judgment. Just like with David, we don't have a lot of information here about God's motives. Some have guessed, well, perhaps He was punishing Israel because of the rebellions, of Absalom and Sheba. We've talked about those at length in here. Uh, that certainly wasn't God's will because David was the Lord's anointed. It was a very serious thing to rebel against the Lord's anointed. But he doesn't say because of the rebellion of Israel against the Lord's anointed. He just says he incites, he was angry with Israel, he incites David against them and tells him to go number the people of Israel and the people of Judah. So how do we make sense of God punishing David and punishing Israel for following his command? That's a tough question. And I'm asking you, answer. No, I'm just kidding. We'll, we'll talk about it. But we're going to make it even more complicated because we have to talk about Satan's design in this as well. David had a motive, God had a purpose, Satan is involved as well. This takes us over to the other account in 1 Chronicles 21. 
Look how this begins in 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. 2 Samuel 24 says the Lord incited David against Israel. 1 Chronicles 21 says Satan incited David against Israel. Israel is going to suffer as a result of this action. We get that. David is the instrument, understood, but who is behind that? Is it God or is it Satan? Which one is it? And uh, there, there are a few ways to look at this. One thing, and if you've studied the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, you know that there is a way of talking about God's sovereign power that includes His permissive will as something that He directly does. In other words, what God allows, He does. What God permits, He's responsible for. The most familiar example of this is Pharaoh's heart in the book of Exodus. Sometimes it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it says Pharaoh's magicians hardened his heart. Sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart, which is true. Well, all of it. God could have delivered his people the first time by forcing Pharaoh's hand. I mean, Pharaoh had no power over God. He could have delivered his people out of Egypt day one. But he knew by taking them through ten plagues, word would spread throughout the nations that he's more powerful than Egypt. So he allowed Pharaoh to get in the way. And in that sense, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. He knew Pharaoh's character. He knew how he would react to the things that he did, to the demands of, of Moses and Aaron. And in that sense, he permitted something that he could have prevented. And I think that's how we have to look at this. Satan is not more powerful than God. He didn't have to allow Satan to incite David to do this and bring this, this tragedy upon Israel that we're about to read about. But he was angry with Israel about their rebellion, perhaps. And so he was going to use this and David would be his instrument for his purposes. And so it's a very interesting thing that's going on here. And it, it's, this isn't the only place where it happens. Think of it this way. Satan desires to destroy David using his pride. And so he tests him by moving him to number Israel. As a part of God's judgment against Israel, God allows Satan to do it. Satan expects to crush David... But instead, God uses this to refine David and make him better. And the sword of justice Satan hoped would wipe out the nation, God used to demonstrate his mercy to the world. And we haven't got to that part yet, but we will. Uh, there are many times... Well, well think, of the, think of it this way. There is a sense in which everyone is on God's team. Even the people who oppose him. Everyone's on God's team. Because even when you oppose Him, He's going to use your opposition, your evil, to accomplish His will. 
that happened in the case of Job, where Satan comes, he's, he wants to test Job, and God gives him permission to do it. And by the end of the story, Job is a better man for it. Job would not have chosen all the things that he went through, but God used that to refine him. Job said, when I come through this, I shall come forth as gold. Job 23.10, and he did. Uh, over in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus tells Peter, Satan has requested you that he may sift you like wheat. In other words, he's, he wants to test you in order to destroy you. And he says, I have prayed for you. And he says to Peter, when you have come through this, I want you to lead the others. And that, that's Satan thinking he's going to destroy someone, but God uses it to make him better. Even at the crucifixion, you have Satan trying his best to destroy the world by destroying the Son of God, and God using it to redeem mankind. This isn't the only place where that kind of thing happens. It's very difficult. We don't pretend to understand it all, but David had a role in this. God had a role in this. Satan had a role in this. And by the end of it, God's will was done. All right. Anybody want to straighten me out on that? Maybe smooth that out a little bit. That's a really tough one. But God's ways are higher than our ways, and we don't always understand them. That's the nature of God. Let's go on to the impact. What happens as a result of David's decision? So Joab does a thorough job, and I find that Joab's always like this. He's a bit vindictive, but when David gives him something to do, even when he doesn't agree with it, well, that's not always the case. David asked him not to kill his son, and he uh, killed Absalom. But when David gives Joab a job to do, Joab gets it done. So he leads this effort of the census going throughout the land in a circuit, ending in the city of Jerusalem. That's going to be very important in a moment. According to 1 Chronicles 21, verse 6, Joab on his own refused to include the tribes of Levi and Benjamin. And again, we're left to try to figure this out on our own. Levi obviously was the holy tribe consecrated for the services of God. The sons of Aaron within that tribe were the priests, but the other descendants of Levi had uh, religious roles as well. That must have had something to do with it. Benjamin, well, the uh, tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant at this time was within the, the borders of Benjamin. And so maybe that had something to do with, with um, Joab's decision. Maybe he didn't want these tribes to be tainted by David's sin. Ironically, this word, which would lead to wholesale death on an unimaginable level, took nine months, 20 days, about the gestation period of a human being. But what was being given birth to here was not life, but rather death. So the results. Um, again, we have a, a bit of a textual issue here. In Samuel's account, 2 Samuel 24, verse 9, 
Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 100,000. Okay, so there it is. What is that? 1.2 million? I'm not great at math, but um, I think I've got that right. That's not right, is it? 1.3 million. Thank you. I knew that. I just wanted to make sure Jason was awake. 1.3 million. Uh, I shouldn't do math in Bible class. Go to 1 Chronicles 21. In verse 5, here's the way the report is given. Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel, there were 1.1 million men who drew the sword. And in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. So the numbers are different. Uh, Samuel says 800,000 in Israel, 500,000 in Judah. Uh, Chronicles says 1.1 million in Israel, 470,000 in Judah. So, you know, the skeptics love this and they cry Bible contradiction, but the discrepancy involves the difference in who was included in each report. So there's some generalizations in these accounts. Thankfully, in other places, we get numbers that fix all of this. It makes sense. Um, the numbers in the 2 Samuel report excluded the standing army mentioned in 1 Chronicles 27 of 288,000. And a, a special force of 12,000 in Jerusalem, which is mentioned in 2 Chronicles 1.14. And then the figure of 470,000 in 1 Chronicles 21 did not include the 30,000 men of the standing army of Judah mentioned in 2 Samuel 6 verse 1. So when you add all of these things up, you realize the figures in both accounts are correct for what they were meant to do. And, um, you know, I always think about this. The Bible writers knew about each other, and uh, they, they've read these accounts more carefully than we have. So, you know, even if this wasn't inspired, it's kind of foolish to immediately think you found a Bible contradiction before combing through all these numbers and checking yourself. But these, these numbers all work out. There's no problem there when you take into account what they're trying to do. So let's move on. David finally realizes his motives. Have you ever been in that situation where you're, you're, you're wrong and you're in this cloud for a long time? You know, David's been this way for over nine months and then it just comes over you, a light bulb goes off, and you suddenly realize that you've been committing sin. David suddenly realizes this, and his conscience stings him. Look at verse 10 of 2 Samuel 24. David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Interesting that it says David's heart struck him. That verb struck was very important in the early part of David's life. In 1 Samuel 17, where he fights Goliath, you see that verb used over and over again, where he's telling Saul in uh, verses 34 and 35 of 1 Samuel 17 that he had struck the lion and struck the bear when they tried to steal his sheep. 
It's the same verb. And then later in that chapter in verse 50 where it says he struck Goliath with a stone from his slingshot, same verb. So he had struck lions and bears. He had struck giants, but now he is striking himself. His conscience is striking him. Same verb. And he's being struck with grief. And so we're again challenged, as we have been all quarter, with this concept of calling David a man after God's own heart. Those are the words of 1 Samuel 13, 14. How can a man after God's own heart make so many mistakes? And we have to remember it's not his per perfection that that phrase applies to. It's his perception. He was able to confess sin, and the word confession... Homologeo in the Greek, the New Testament word for confession means to say the same thing. David had a heart like God's because he saw sin the, way, the same way God saw it. It may, may have taken him some time, but he was willing to say the same thing about his sin that God would say about his sin, which is a rare quality, unfortunately. And that's what we see happening right here. So God gives him a tough choice. Have you ever used this as a parent? Your child does something wrong and you have to punish them and you say to them, I'm going to let you tell me your punishment. I've never done that because my kids would come up with something like, uh, I have to watch TV for three hours, you know, something like that. <laughs> Smart Alex, but... Uh, and maybe some of you have done that. I've heard of parents doing that before. Well, that's the approach God takes. He does give David some choices. He has three choices. Look at uh, 24, verses 11 through 13. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer. There are prophets all over the place. And it's, it's fascinating to me when one of these lesser-known prophets are just dropped in, because I wonder what their stories were. You know, I wonder if there are as many stories about Gad as there are about Elisha and Elijah. We just only have the records of Elisha and Elijah. Gad is mentioned one other time, I think, in 1 Samuel 22. And here he is again, the Lord... Uh, maybe Nathan was busy, and uh, the Lord said, Gad, it's your turn to go in. He's called David's seer, which is a term that was applied to Samuel. And he says, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you, choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said, here's the first one, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Do you want your whole nation to be affected by starvation for three years? Second choice. Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? War for three months where your enemies will have the upper hand. Much bloodshed. Or, number three, Shall there be three days' pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Put yourself in King David's shoes. 
what would you choose? I mean, they're all bad choices, right? Bad choices because of a bad choice he made. One consideration is the length of time. I mean, three days sounds better than three months, which sounds better than three years. But famine probably would kill fewer than war, and war probably would kill fewer than pestilence. But then, in David's consideration, it's better to throw yourself on the mercies of God than on the mercies of men. David knew the Lord, and he knew that God is far more merciful and forgiving than human beings. And he didn't want to put himself in the hands of vindictive men, which definitely would be the case in three months of fleeing before his foes. And even with famine, uh, you know, there would be nations around them that could help them out, much in the same way Egypt helped uh, Judah and other nations during Joseph's day. But David didn't expect to get a whole lot of help from the Philistines, for example, or others. And so in his view, because of the short period of time, and because of the one in whose hands it was, pestilence was the lesser of the evils. So he chose the third option in verse 14. Look at the consequences. Swift was God's judgment. Verse 15. The Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. Dan to Beersheba is, um, is a term that's used all the time of Israel, meaning all the way from the north to the south. And he said 70,000 men, which means more people than 70,000 might have been killed. That might have just meant men, not counting women and children. And so it was at least 70,000. Uh, Swift too, though, was God's mercy. Look at the next verse, verse 16. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Really strange things going on here because the devastation seems to be brought on personally by the angel of the Lord, this mysterious character that you see various times speaking to Abraham at his tent in Genesis 18, or to Moses through the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, or even to um, uh, Samson's parents, I think, in the book of Judges. Uh, you see him pop up, and, and some people wonder if this is the pre-existent state of Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord does speak as Yahweh in many places and has divine authority. Here, uh, he seems to be submissive to God the Father. And uh, we're not really told a whole lot about it. And it's not about the angel of the Lord. I think the reason why it's brought up this way and, and handled this way will become clear in just a moment. But anyway, he comes to this very specific place, the threshing floor of this man, Arona, notice he's a Jebusite. David captured the land of the Jebusites and founded the city of Jerusalem. Apparently, it wasn't utter destruction of the Jebusites. 
He subdued them, and they were now living within his kingdom. And uh, this was not a Jewish person. So David sees the angel wielding a sword over Jerusalem and pleaded with God to shift the blame upon himself. Look at verse 17. David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, you see the shepherd coming out in him, these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. He was taking responsibility. And despite all the mistakes he made, isn't it great to see a world leader taking responsibility? I'm not going to get political here. This could apply to any nation. But in politics today, you rarely see a world leader taking responsibility. Here David is. Take me. This isn't their fault. It's me. Of course, the beginning of the chapter tells us The Lord knows exactly what he is doing. He's been angry with Israel, and that is why this is happening. It's not just David's blunder that caused all of this. What happens next is very, very interesting. Let's talk about this in terms of a place for a temple. You realize there's no temple yet. David had said he wanted Jerusalem to be the capital He wanted to build a temple. The Lord said, there's too much blood on your hands. Your son Solomon will build a temple. God stays the hand of the angel of death at the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite in Jerusalem. And at this spot, God commands the king to build an altar. That's verse 18. Now the property belonged to this man, Arona. And as I said, he's not a Jew. But he owned this piece of property that was very special to Israel because this was the location of Mount Moriah. You learn this later in 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1. It's just kind of thrown out there. and We don't really know the location of Mount Moriah until that verse, 2 Chronicles 3, 1, says it's right here where Arona lived. Now, You may not remember this, but Mount Moriah comes up in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham is told to take his only son Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice. It's on Mount Moriah that Abraham straps Isaac down to an altar and raises his dagger to kill his son and is stopped in the action in an act of mercy by God. Now you have the angel of the Lord, sword drawn, killing Israelites, and he is sword raised, and he's stopped in the act by the mercy of God. I don't think that can be a coincidence. I mean, I think we have to look at this and see a lot of symbolism and depth in it. The king is told, build an altar here. Build an altar right here where Abraham built his altar and learned the mercy of God and the power of substitution as a ram was offered in Isaac's place. And so Arona, being a good, good person, offers to give David the implements for sacrifice, the oxen. I'll make this easy for you, David. You can have all of this free of charge. And David says in verse 24, I will buy it from you for a price... I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. 
Here you have a fundamental principle of worship. Worship should cost you something. You should give God your very best. When we talk about giving, that's probably the easiest way to think about it because we should give sacrificially and generously and cheerfully. But that goes to your singing and to your listening to the Word, your prayer, taking the Lord's Supper. You should give Him your focus, your attention. You should give Him your reverence, your very best when you go to worship Him. Worship is, is costly. And that's the point that David's trying to make here, and he makes it well. Then 1 Chronicles 21, 27 says, The Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back into its sheath. And worshiping at the foot of this altar he built near the end of his life, where Abraham once built an altar, David understands God's grace probably more clearly here than any other time in his life. Look how the story ends in 1 Chronicles over on the next chapter, first verse. David says, Here shall be the home of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. This is where Solomon would build the temple. So think about this. Abraham is told to take his son to Mount Moriah and offer him. And in the act of slaying him, he stopped with the knife in his hand and a substitution is offered. Centuries later, in this same place, God stops the hand of the angel again from killing Israelites and tells David to build an altar. And now we're there because the sword of God's justice is drawn against us because of our sin. You see, this is also the location of Calvary. This is where they crucified Jesus. And as the sword of judgment is drawn against us for our sin, God builds an altar. It's a cross. But instead of a ram or an oxen, He offers His own Son. And so justice and mercy meet once more in this very important place. And I think it's just amazing to see that the theme of redemption through the death of Jesus, the joining where God's justice and mercy are joined, runs from Genesis all the way to the end of the Bible. It's this consistent theme that gives our life meaning and that gives us hope. And that, above all the technical details of what's going on and the numbers involved and David's motives, that's what we're to take from this story. And that's why it's important for us to, to study it together. Anybody want to add anything else to this? Larry. Yes, yeah. There's a discrepancy there between the three years and the seven years. And I, I saw that in my reading today, and there's some explanation about it, but I, I can't for the life of me remember.
Yeah, seven is that number of divine perfection or totality. And, and maybe that had something to do with the difference in translation. But I think the best manuscript evidence points to three years, three months, three days. And um, I saw something on it, but I, I can't remember what the explanation was. I was kind of hoping nobody would bring it up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>